0: You have to be judicious, you have to be aware, and you have to understand how you own your own data. A lot of the free web to social media platforms rose to prominence because they collected your data as part of their terms of service.
1: Hi, and welcome to a special live broadcast of Evolving. Today, I am here with Jerry Bowie. He is a digital forensics expert and certified fraud examiner. And we're going to be talking all about how digital forensics intersects with data privacy, especially in the age of the quantified self. Jerry, thanks so much for being with us today.
0: It's my pleasure, Anita. And I know that we're both part of the LinkedIn Creator Accelerator program, using all the features that LinkedIn has to offer. So I'm excited to try this out for the first time.
1: Definitely, this is my first live event myself. So excited to see how this tool (laughs) works and everything. So thanks for tuning in and we'll just get right into it. So if you wouldn't mind starting, For the uninitiated among us, what exactly is digital forensics?
0: Sure. Um, We're often hired as forensic examiners in investigation cases or litigation cases. So it deals with data, as the digital part of digital forensics might imply. What do we do with that data, right? We treat the data in a way that is acceptable for submission as evidence in court, right? So that data suddenly becomes forensic but it has value for evidentiary purposes.
1: I love that. And I feel like a lot of us, when we hear that word forensics, we think of sort of being at the scene of a crime, collecting clues, trying to figure out what happened in a given state. We're basically trying to get to the truth of what happened in a given scenario. How do you relate your work to being a detective and problem solving?
0: I think there's a lot of parallels to be drawn. And I often tell others that I am a computer forensics testifying expert. It usually draws some oohs and ahs. so I was, like, impressing other people. But unfortunately, they come back to me with, oh, I watch CSI, and they... uh, (laughs) And then they acquaint... I mean, they do understand the difference between, like, a forensics person that deals with crimes in the real world, the non-digital world, where they're dealing with murder scenes and things like that. There are crimes being committed online in digital space, too. There are criminal forensics examiners. I'm not of that criminal type. So I work for the private sector, essentially. So I'm not part of law enforcement. And there's quite a distinction between computer forensics examiners that work for law enforcement versus for the private sector. I work for a consulting company. And by the way, I'm here you know, representing myself. None of the opinions that I make today are attributed to my employer. So I just wanted to get that disclaimer out of the way. But for the private sector, it often deals with white collar type crime or type of breaches and things of that nature. I myself deal mostly with internal threats. So it's those employees who, you know, do something that's unacceptable by way of risking compliance for companies or um, actually breaking that criminal boundary where we might make referrals to the FBI, et cetera.
1: Gotcha. And do you find that it's maybe harder to track certain crimes? Or is it harder to follow a paper trail when it comes to digital crime versus something that happened in a non-digital space?
0: Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I addressed it kind of on a recent podcast with Kalina Leopold. She has a great a new podcast called Resolved, where she talks about you know different legal and forensic issues that intersect with that Better Call Saul show. Uh, and I was recently a guest there and we did get into the difference between paper forgeries versus digital forgeries. And so we deal with you know digital forgeries and counterfeits because there is such a thing when it comes to digital media, especially with the ease with which you can use some of these tools to create deep fakes and other document forgeries uh, much easier than you did back in the day. And Better Call Saul, I think takes place in the early 2000s. Uh, where those tools weren't really prominent, so you'd have to do it the, the old school way. And in season two, episode eight, Fifi—that's the one that we covered during her podcast—Saul goes to the copy shop, like a Kinko-style copy shop, to take documents and cut out letters, and you know, glue stick them on to a new document, and then recopy it so that it, it hides those you know edges for the cutouts. But you know, that's a lot of work. I feel like that takes a lot of energy. So those types of things are done much easier with digital tools. But if you can get away with it in the paper world, it's a lot harder to have an audit trail because there isn't like the metadata that you would have on digital files. And we rely a lot on metadata that is embedded in those files or part of the computer operating system file system, along with other related tracking artifacts. And then there's the added value of having synchronization to the cloud. So we can look at logs that are captured within the cloud, whether it's from a third party platform or enterprise grade platform on behalf of the company. But there's a lot of places we can look to triangulate and figure out that auto trail information that's captured automatically.
1: Gotcha. And when it comes to protecting our own personal private data, when we are interacting with platforms, when we are kind of turning over certain permissions to applications, how do we exercise, you know, judicious stewardship of our own personal data.
0: I like the way you put that. That's exactly right. You have to be judicious. You have to be aware and you have to understand how you own your own data, which is kind of a new concept or an evolving concept. And I think in the U.S., we're just catching up with um, the European Union, who are much more data privacy conscious over there and the law support keeping that ownership of personal data private. So, you know, a lot of the free web to social media platforms rose to prominence because they collected your data as part of their terms of service and essentially owned it, not just the, you know, content that you created, whether it's written content or artistic content, absolutely was owned by them per the terms of service or terms and conditions. But then all of the artifact information as well And I think there's a lot of value in them tracking that information for advertising purposes and that's their business model, essentially. And so, you know, there was, I think a different interpretation of who owned that data for the longest time, but you know, we're coming into a world now where the laws are catching up to the European union here in the States. It's right now by a state by state basis, the federal laws aren't quite there yet. So as you know, The data privacy protections spread across the different states. I think that the federal ones will also come in line to match the EU ones. That seems to be the trend.
1: Gotcha. And when it comes to our data potentially being outsourced to even more third parties, for example, if collection of personal health data from wearables starts being shared with insurance companies for the purposes of quoting people and determining their risk for certain diseases... How would that perhaps interact with our current environment? And is it possible to prevent discrimination Mm -hmm. on the basis of this data that's being collected about our private health matters?
0: I think that, um, you know, we live in the world of big data now. There's just an abundance of data and advertisers made use of it. Like you said, health insurers could make use of it. And, you know, to the uninitiated or the inexperienced, this data could be collected and modeled in a way that isn't scientifically sound, right? Or isn't statistically representative, it could be skewed. This skew in that data, like a lot of data that the police use have been found to have some bias in it too, especially when AI models are being created from the predictive models are being created. So I think there's a need for data scientists that operate in a solid sound foundation uh, and understanding how to work off of a baseline of data that is accurate and representative. I think that's a start. But secondly, it's also the software manufacturers, software and device manufacturers who make use of this data need to have protections around it. You know, oftentimes these things are released with features first, and then security second, and then what I deem as legal and compliance last. But, you know, during that Lag time or lack of planning, it could be taken advantage of. So there's vulnerabilities within the network, within the device, within the software that might be exploited to get at the underlying data that might be deemed personally identifiable information or personal health information, right? PII or PHI. Um, so they might get to the bedrock of that data by surpassing all these different layers that have you know huge gaping holes in terms of uh, security and protection.
1: Gotcha. That makes sense. And do you think that there's also potentially a concern for women's reproductive rights? I'm basically thinking about how sometimes period tracker data, if that got into the wrong hands, would that maybe have some bearing on the current reproductive situation in which we find ourselves with Roe v. Wade being overturned and reproductive rights not safeguarded in every particular state? Do you think that could be a point of concern, maybe?
0: Yeah, I think data can be exploited in a a lot of different ways, especially if there's a political motivation behind it, or what's deemed as the enforcement of existing laws, right? So I think there's kind of some basis for doing these things, and I think it'll be um, challenged in court pretty vehemently. It's a really volatile time when it comes to women's reproductive rights. And so that data is really important, especially geolocation data as well from a lot of these wearables too, since the latest laws have been pushed down to the states. And so, you know, the movement of individuals to states that might be adopting, you know, certain postures towards these abortion right laws, you know, matter because they're thinking about, I think, convicting. I'm certainly out of my depth here when it comes to that, but in terms of the data, it can be used unless protected. And we're kind of at the mercy of the software and device vendors and network, the third-party networking platforms, the cloud, essentially, for having this information leak, you know, and get into the wrong hands. The options that we have as um, individuals and patients should be taking care around which devices, which apps we use and how much data is actually recorded. And so there's kind of the dark side of data that runs alongside or coincides with the beneficial sides of data and the use of that data for things like the quantification of health metrics.
1: Definitely. And I just wanted to go back to that point that you made about encryption. Of course, when our data is stored on the cloud, it is often already gone through some sort of encryption protocol. Do you think there are additional steps that we as consumers need to be taking? Should we be using a virtual private network or anything like that to safeguard our security online even further?
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. So in terms of our high-speed internet access at home, you definitely should be using some kind of private network, not a VPN per se, but setting up your router so that the public IP addresses aren't running throughout all the devices in your home. Really, the public IP address that's assigned by your internet service provider should sit on the external interface of your router. And I know I might be getting a little bit technical here, but just be aware that there is such a thing as public IP addresses and private IP addresses. And so the internally facing one should be purely private IP addresses They're only routable within the network at home Um, that helps limit the leak of data, but also a firewall, a software firewall that's often built into routers. And if those routers are provided to you by your ISP, you need to change the administrative password. You actually need to turn on the router. So that it's providing you with those protections, but certainly a VPN on top of all of that will help protect your data. And there's a lot of publicly available VPNs or open source VPNs that you can use outside of one that's perhaps provided by your company. But the other thing I'd add on to that too is to understand whether or not your IoT or what wearable devices are tethered or not tethered, okay? So if they're tethered to your phone, there's additional layer of protection there. I wouldn't say it's bulletproof, but certainly Apple Store and Google Play have an evaluation process where they do a security scan, they evaluate whether there's any you know, vulnerabilities in the software in their app stores. And so if your wearable needs to go through an app on your phone, you know, that's what we define as tethered, then there's an additional amount of protection that you might have there, right? As opposed to an IP address directly on the device itself where it's not tethered to some kind of app that's been screened by an Apple App Store or Google Play store, right? So just be aware that I think that we need to be really cognizant about any IP addresses that, especially if they're public IP addresses, right? Again, distinguishing between public and private IP address networks. Um, But you can already tell that given all these layers and all these things to think about, it's really complex and hard for the average everyday person to know how to, you know, enable all those layers of protection.
1: Definitely. And how would one potentially get started if someone is perhaps not technologically savvy and basically just wants to set these things up and kind of forget about it because they don't want to have to deal with the technical side of things. What would you recommend as a 101 solution for the non-technically illiterate among us? I don't know if I said that right.
0: No, I understand what you're saying. I think there's always a friend or family member that's willing to help out. Certainly if we're talking about you know healthcare companies, they should uh, hire someone that handles their security, right? There's often someone that sits on the, you know, executive team that will be responsible for CISO-like duties. But I think they're starting to catch on. I mean, a lot of industries were seen as vulnerable for the longest time, whether it's hospitals or law firms or governmental agencies or local agencies. They might be opening up hardware, you know, whether it's a laptop or a desktop or even networking equipment and using it out of the box without, you know, having all of the security settings in place. And sometimes if you're not experienced, turning on a security feature might prevent you from doing certain things like printing or getting to certain websites. And then they decide to turn it off because it's just too inconvenient. And that's where the gaping holes start to appear. There's credentialed certified folks that can help harden your business networks. But for the average everyday individual, it's following certain guides. I don't have any specific hyperlinks or URLs to follow for a security 101 training, but there's plentiful, reliable information out there. Pick someone or a site you know that speaks to you, that speaks in a language that you understand, right? Because it can get really technical and jargony.
1: Definitely. Yeah. I love that point to kind of make sure that You find something accessible when you're looking for this data. And yeah, perhaps consult some of your more technologically inclined friends and family members if you need additional help. I love that idea.
0: Anita, just being aware and asking for that help.
1: Absolutely. I think
0: that's key. It's just understanding that those measures need to be taken.
1: Absolutely. Just making it a priority and, you know, not kind of pushing it to the sideline just because it's difficult to implement and get started with. I think that's a really important message for sure. I did want to ask you about one particular thing when it comes to the collection of these vast amounts of health data, there is perhaps this impetus to want to use it for the betterment of research for kind of advancing science or medicine in some way. How do we ensure when we're trying to use our data for like these admirable purposes that the actual data remains anonymized and can't be connected back to its source?
0: Yeah, it's difficult because even though it looks anonymized or pseudonymized, there's our studies that say that they can be reverse engineered. So if your personally identifiable information has been provided at any point, other than trusting the folks that have these noble pursuits, you know, doing the due diligence and asking for these certifications, checking whether or not they've, you know, got certain ISO certification certifications, but also like whether or not they prioritize the protection of that information. So reading up on materials and if they lack those materials or their certifications, then that's a reason to perhaps tread carefully or not engage with those companies at all.
1: Does this perhaps mean that researchers or graduate students or MDs and PhDs who are doing clinical facing work, maybe conducting trials, does security training need to be a part of their curriculum?
0: Yeah, I think it's fundamental. Nowadays, we've been providing this type of training for lawyers in my field for the longest time, right? And so it's making sure that a lot of these professions understand that they are going through digital transformations. If those transformations haven't occurred within those industries already, they need to be responsible participants in protecting that data. And so the security training for those folks, I think, is essential. And I think they need to also feel that it's important you know, sometimes as important as their main practice areas as well.
1: Definitely. And what would be the best way for a clinical research institute to kind of get more diligent about doing this? Should they kind of hire a consultant and, you know, make sure that everything is up to par as far as security goes? Should they kind of like have someone, an outside third party kind of come in and kind of perform like a walkthrough, making sure that things are as tight as they need to be? Is that the best path forward or are there other avenues to pursue?
0: I think there's other avenues and, you know, you could pick your starting point, you know, you could hire the right consultants, but there's often regulatory regimes that dictate the security measures that need to be in place. If you're running a certain type of business, like if you're a CRO or a CRI, so you have to be aware about those regulatory requirements and then even kick it up a notch or two. If you find it important, there is a cost to implementing these things on the front end, But it's much costlier on the back end when something goes wrong, you could destroy your organization or your company, and you could lose your entire investment if there's any breaches to the data, and especially if they're in violation of some of these regulatory requirements.
1: Absolutely. What do you think is going to be the future of the technological landscape as far as privacy goes? As far as big data goes, really anything that interfaces with your work, what are some trends that you see maybe in the next five to 10 years?
0: I think it's going to continue to be a cat and mouse game because for as many people that are out there doing the good work of, you know, securing products, networks and devices, there's going to be people looking for vulnerabilities and, you know, exploits that they can use to get at that data, which is like digital gold, right? And with the rise of artificial intelligence and the rise of quantum computing, I think the speed at which these things occur are going to be difficult to manage. Um, And so, you know, the automation will kick up on the good side and then automation will kick up on the bad side. It's usually the good side catching up to the bad side because their incentives are pretty strong, especially if it's easy for them to do. Our job is to make it not easy at the end of the day. But you'll find, I think, a lot more hands-off type of investigations, a lot more Automation and artificial intelligence aiding the investigator just as much as they aid the wrongdoer. So, there's unfortunately going to be, I think, victims as we progress. Everyone, I think, needs to be hyper vigilant when it comes to understanding how data can be stolen. You know, a lot of the attitudes nowadays are, well, if I'm not doing anything wrong, I shouldn't worry about it. But, you know, it's easy to say until you have your identity stolen or something like that. It's very difficult to restore your good name.
1: Absolutely. I think that's a really important message, that about prevention and kind of getting out ahead of threats before they become something that's really destructive.
0: Yeah, you want to be part of that population of folks that are vigilant and aware and not part of the subpopulation of people that become victims, right? I mean, the goal is to protect as many people as we can, but there's some personal responsibility and awareness and education that you need to take on yourself.
1: For sure. We have this personal responsibility to be proactive. Awesome sauce. (laughs) Let our audience know where they can find you online and where they can go to kind of learn more about digital forensics. If they're curious about the field, if they want to just be more vigilant about their privacy online, if they maybe want to educate their children about the topic.
0: Yeah. I mean, if you look, you'll find me, meaning I'm everywhere. I'm probably, you know, not like your average everyday digital forensics examiner. You put myself out there for the purposes of education and having a lot of community interaction. And in a lot of ways, if you're not using a lot of these platforms, you're not understanding the intricacies of how they work and understanding their shortcomings, right? So it's almost like R&D. But you can find me on LinkedIn. So I'm at linkedin.com forward slash in forward slash Jerry. Bowie. But if you type in Jerry Bowie, the combination of my first and last name seems to be super unique. So if you just type that in, I'll probably be the first entry that you find. Same thing if you go to TikTok or Instagram or Twitter.
1: I love that. You're SEO friendly. So just type in the name and everything will come up. Awesome. That's right. Well, thank you so much for your time today and for enlightening us about digital privacy, about protecting our data, and for teaching us about digital forensics. I appreciate it.
0: It was my pleasure. And let's turn the tables next time. Let me interview you because I think you are in a really interesting role. And I have just as much to learn about your field as you did about digital forensics.
1: Absolutely. I'm excited for the collaboration. You can find the show notes for this and all other episodes at the Substack URL linked in the show description. You can also review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, or Podchaser. Thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time.